It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Behind the Lines. I'm Arthur Snell. Before we get started, I want to tell you about a podcast that I'm really enjoying at the moment, Disorder is a weekly podcast from Goalhanger, the makers of The Rest is Politics and The Rest is History. It's tackling the really big questions like, how did the world get so disordered? What are the fundamental principles behind our current era of geopolitics? And how do seemingly disparate challenges from AI to climate change, to wars in the Middle East and Ukraine, to tax havens, to unregulated cyberspace, how do they all interact with each other and feed into our era of global enduring disorder? So check out the link in the show notes to follow the podcast immediately. Along at that point came Mark Sykes, a young Conservative MP. He was in his mid-30s. Uh, he was Kitchener's military assistant and a man of, of considerable energy, if not um, talent, and uh, somebody who also, well, he left people in the, the, under the impression that he could speak both Arabic and Turkish, for example, when in fact um, his grasp of both those languages was pretty minimal. And in December 1915, he, he went into the uh, cabinet meeting, he had a map with him, and he uh, he announced that he wanted to draw a line from the E of Acre to the last K in Kirkuk. Those are the exact words from the, the minutes of the meeting. Crisis in Israel-Palestine continues, currently unfolding with the Israeli attack on Gaza, which was immediately preceded, of course, by the Hamas-led massacre in southern Israel. Unpicking the history and origins of these events remains a particularly difficult task, with history used and abused by people with points to prove on all sides. For that reason, I was particularly happy to be able to conduct an extended interview with the historian James Barr, whose books on the history of the Middle East including A Line in the Sand and Lords of the Desert, are some of the best regarded guides to the region, particularly in the early years of the 20th century. With James in this first episode, we got to the bottom of famous moments in the Levant region in that era, including the Sykes-Picot Agreement and the Balfour Declaration, as well as the underlying colonial tensions, notably between Britain and France, that drove much of these events. In a subsequent episode, we will talk about Jewish militancy in the mid-20th century, the events of 1948, including the Nakba and the establishment of the State of Israel. I hope you find it interesting. Here's James. James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Arthur. Thanks for having me. 
so James, um, we're obviously speaking in the wider context of, of the terrible events in Israel and Gaza and Israel's ongoing military operation there. Um, and of course, across the Middle East, history always looms large. And some people take that history back thousands of years. And indeed, there's a I think there's a video which has sort of been circulating on YouTube where Rory Stewart talks about the Israel-Palestine issue in the context of a 3,000-year history. Um, but in a way, I've, I think there are limitations with that, not the least of which is that nation states didn't exist at all, of course, 3,000 years ago and, and not even you know 300 years ago. Um, so I was really keen to talk to you about the 20th century and the lead in to to the, the 21st century. So perhaps we could start with that, the, the beginning of the 20th century. What was the basic situation in the place that is now Israel and Palestine and, of course, the wider Levant region? So that part of the world uh, 110 years ago or so was part of the Ottoman Empire, and it had been part of the Ottoman Empire since 1517. That's probably as far back as as we need to go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In the 16th century, the Ottomans had expanded uh, southwards. They they took on the, the Mamluks. Uh, they defeated them and then and then Palestine, uh, as we think of it now, Israel, Palestine, came under Ottoman rule. And that's how it stayed for the next 400 years with a bit of intermission from Napoleon and uh, Mehmet Ali in the in the 19th century. But it was it was Ottoman controlled. Yeah. And the population there, the majority of the people that that lived there describe would they have described themselves as Palestinians? And what, what religion were they? What what languages did they speak? So uh, a, mi a, mi a real mixture. Uh, there were most most people there were were Arab Palestinians. Uh, they didn't necessarily see them. They probably saw themselves as Syrians actually at that time. That's probably yeah. uh, the best way of describing them. Uh, some of them were Sunni Muslims. Some of them were Christians. There was a real mixture of people in Jerusalem, uh, just as you, you know you find today. People from all over the world had had come there. And there was also a very small Jewish population, which uh, had um, sometimes been there for quite a long time. Some 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 Jews there were relatively recent arrivals. They were uh, most of them were sort of experimental farmers. Actually, they founded communities um, towards the coast by and large, and and they were growing oranges. Uh, mm. So you have you've mentioned the Jewish population there, and that's obviously hugely important. Clearly, you have the historic uh, kingdom of Israel, and there are plenty of archaeological remains of that. Um, but uh, before the late 19th century and the growth of the Zionist movement, uh, the Jewish communities do exist across the Arab world, but they're, they're concentrated in one or two areas, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, you find most of them were in... Um trying to remember but Alexandria and Baghdad are the are yeah. two major centers so I mean yeah. going again going right right back the Romans after after the Jewish revolts in the first and second centuries AD the the, the, the Romans forced the uh, Jews to leave Judea uh, as it was then so they had spread across you know across the Middle East as as well and then and then subsequently you know much wider still yeah so so then let, let's talk a little bit about Zionism. And that, that forces us to go back into the 19th century in the context of a lot of anti-Semitism across Europe, of course. And uh, at that time, most Jews in the world were living in Europe. The idea of a return to the, the sort of biblical and, and historic homeland of the Jews became sort of a, a bit more a bit more lively. Um, when did when did Jews start to move to uh, what is now Israel in in sort of substantial numbers? So really, only at the turn of the twentieth century. Uh, you, uh, the founder of Zionism, generally is seen as uh, Theodor Herzl. Yeah, uh, but his campaign had not had a huge amount of success. So I mean, that, that starts in the eighteen eighties or so, and it, it hadn't really gained much traction. As you say, it was it was being driven by, you know, huge, deep anti-Semitism, particularly in Russia, uh, yeah. but all across Eastern Europe. Uh, but many of the people that who who arrived in um, Palestine subsequently played a, a crucial role in the in the uh, 
uh, you know, in the Zionist movement, people like David Ben-Gurion, for example, appeared, at, you know, they, they were they were young people who came very early in the 20th century. Yeah. And it was only after that that, you know, that, that, that things really took off. Yeah. And what sort of they were leaving parts of of largely of sort of Central Europe where anti-Semitism was was a growing uh, phenomenon. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, I was just reading earlier on today about the man who uh, who steered um, a famous ship called the Exodus that we'll no doubt get on to. And he was mm. born in Danzig, for example. Right. Right. Which is now Gdansk in modern day Poland. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So let's. um. Let, let's talk a bit about the events of the First World War, because that seems to crystallise uh, some of what, you know, set into motion uh, some of the some of the sort of lines on a map that we now find in in the Middle East. Uh, lots of people, of course, know the story of Lawrence of Arabia and the Arab revolt. And this was a, a group that was sort of unseating the Ottomans coming up from what is now Saudi Arabia. But what was going on in in what is now the territory of Israel and Palestine during World War One, so it was the subject of a, a dispute between the British and the French, which arose from a promise that the British made to persuade the Arabs to revolt. So, I mean, at the beginning of the war, one of Britain's neuroses was that there would be a jihad against them. So that the Ottoman Sultan, who was um, the Ottomans on the on the German side. The Germans pressed the Sultan to to announce this call to holy war, thinking that it would uh, cause the populations of Egypt and India to rise up against the British, and that would divert British resources away from the Western Front. Yeah. Uh, so to blunt that, the British came up with the idea of encouraging the Sharif of Mecca to to revolt against the Ottomans. The, obviously, Mecca at the centre of the Muslim world. There could be no better illustration of the fact that not all Muslims, you know, would would uh, support the Sultan than if the Sharif revolted. And to persuade him to do that, they made this rather uh, ill-advised and vague promise to him that they would give him a big a a empire after the war. And that included um, Israel, Palestine. Well, it depends. You can have a big, long argument about this. But it was so, it was done, it was deliberately vague. And in fact, the first person who who was confused by its vagueness was the man who translated it into Arabic so by the right. time it arrived with the, the sheriff it, it read rather more forthrightly than the British had ever imagined it would the consequences of that letter or the, the thing that happened then was that the French found out about what was going on uh, they picked up in Cairo that there'd been some sort of uh, deal done and that started to make them rather concerned because they'd always been very suspicious of Britain's motives in the Middle East going, you know, way back to the Napoleonic era. But in the First World yeah. War, in the context of the First World War, Britain had shown this strange uh, interest in attacking Gallipoli at the beginning of 1915. And the French, uh, essentially, this was it was done because they weren't making any headway on the Western Front. But it was. Yeah. When, when, when the British came up with this sort of grand idea, the French immediately thought that the empire building lay behind it. Yeah. Uh, and so the French were very anxious to get a, some sort of agreement on what would happen uh, to the sort of post-Ottoman world. And in the funny way that these sort of bureaucratic initiatives develop a momentum, which kind of lasts long after they've actually become irrelevant, even though Gallipoli was a complete fiasco and... and um, by the middle of 1915, it was quite clear there wasn't going to be a breakthrough. It wasn't going to result in the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. The British and the French were still arguing over what would happen to uh, the Ottomans' Middle Eastern yeah. territory. A man called Francois-Georges Picot, a very sort of angular and rather awkward French diplomat, arrived in London to, to press the case. And he had a series of meetings with um, British officials from the various government departments, concerned they were all rather one-sided you get the impression that he was sitting on one side of a long table and, and, and these various Brits were on the other side and he yeah. insisted that there was a need for some sort of deal because uh, up to that point in the war France had suffered far far more casualties than Britain yeah. had and, and, and Georges Picot used this to to sort of um, you know as a, a, as a lever to, to force the British into talks 
This also came, it came at a very awkward time because this is in the run up to the Battle of the Somme, the, uh, everyone who had wanted to volunteer to fight in the war had volunteered really by that point, or the, the vast majority of them. And they were all being trained for that, that battle yeah. in 1916. And the British government was actually now starting to think about the, the awkward need to conscript people. And that was the political priority. So Georges Picot and and all this came at a rather, you know, it was rather unwelcome intrusion into more serious government business. Yeah. Along at that point came Mark Sykes, a young yeah. Conservative MP. He was in his mid-30s. Uh, he was Kitchener's military assistant and a man of, of considerable energy, if not um, talent, and uh, somebody who also... Well, he left people in the, the, under the impression that he could speak both Arabic and Turkish, for example, when in fact um, his grasp of both those languages was pretty minimal. But he had travelled very widely through the Middle East before the war. He'd written a couple of books on the subject. So he was, as far as anyone could see, an expert on the subject. Yeah. And in December 1915, he, he went into the uh, cabinet meeting. He had a map with him and he... Uh, he announced that he wanted to draw a line from the E of Acre to the last K in Kirkuk. Those are the exact words from the, the minutes of the meeting. Right. And he said that if the, if the Britain and France split the, the Middle East down this line and France had the territory north of that line, Britain got what was to the south, then that would resolve matters, he thought, with the French. Yeah. And the politicians said, well, jolly good if you know what you, you know, you seem to know what you're talking about. You go off and, and speak to Georges Picot. And so Sykes, who lived um, on Buckingham Gate, just opposite Buckingham Palace uh, at that time, he had a series of meetings with Georges Picot, uh, which led to the Sykes-Picot agreement. And uh, so France got the sort of territory. It was a, a great swathe of, of territory, including northern Iraq, but now Syria, Syria and Lebanon as well. Yeah. Uh, Britain was going to get Israel, Palestine, Jordan and, and southern Iraq. Yeah. Um, well, actually, that's not quite true. Actually, that, that, so hang on, let's just rewind that. So, so right. under, under the terms of the deal, that the so Sykes drew the line from Acre to Kirkuk, mm. and the territory north of that line was going to go to France, uh, and everything south of that, bar Israel Palestine, would go to the British because with Israel Palestine they couldn't reach an agreement. So they they the compromise was that it would have an international administration. Uh, at that time. And that was something that neither of them liked. Georges Picot, because uh, uh, France's sort of kind of imperial identity was quite closely tied up with protecting Christians in the, the Holy yeah. Land. They'd done that under a deal they struck with the Ottomans again about 400 years earlier. And, and the British wanted it because they, Sykes's concept was a, a, of a sort of cordon across the Middle East from Egypt, which was already under British control, all the way to the Iranian frontier. And the idea was to create a, a what he called a belt of English controlled country that yeah. ran across the Middle East and, and kept essentially all Britain's, uh, all Britain's rivals away from the approaches to India. Yeah. So, that so the deal. And so this is the the famous, I could say infamous, Sykes-Picot uh, agreement, which to some extent, it's almost gained more significance in, in its ongoing reputation than it ever really had in reality. Is, is that a fair is, is that a fair judgment? That is absolutely fair because it was essentially it was a diplomatic sticking plaster. It was it was done because of the the concern about the Entente Cordiale. It was it, Georges Picot had managed to worry the British enough that if they didn't cut some sort of deal, then the whole future of the alliance was at stake. And in 1915, there were, you know, there were some serious worries that about whether France really had it in itself to, to, you know, to carry on fighting because of the, the number of casualties that yeah. the French army had sustained and there'd been mutinies and so on, so so on. So so that you know, so it was it, there was a real concern underlying it. But the deal was obviously it was drawn on a map uh, that's about it's about three foot by three foot and uh, coloured in coloured pencil. And I don't think anyone really at the time felt that it was going to to shape the Middle East in the way it did. I mean, 
there's an argument about this. Some people will look at say look at all the, the, the sort of lines on it and say, look, most of this didn't come to pass. Mm. But the core, you know, the, the core operating principle of it was that Britain and France would rule the Middle East after the war. And that is then what actually happened. That is what happened. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that uh, they couldn't reach agreement on Israel and Palestine, and there was an idea for some kind of an international administration. And obviously, we're going to go on to talk about a, a, another significant uh, sort of historic um, decision or declaration momentarily. But what what was envisaged for that? The, the concept of international administration yes. in the early 20th century was quite a novel one. So what 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 did they have in mind for for the sort of what is what was then known as Palestine? Well, I. I think it was, you know, it was really quite vague. I mean, there'd been obviously there'd been the, the, the status of Jerusalem had been an issue, which was a part, part of one of the causes of the Crimean War, you know, during the 19th century. Yeah. But I don't think I, this was really it was, a, as I say, it was a kind of it was a, a fix. Uh, it wasn't no one had really thought that carefully about exactly who would rule rule Jerusalem. And when the question actually then became a material one after Britain took Jerusalem in December 1917 and, and General Allenby, the victorious general, marched in, mm. uh, Georges Picot was hot on his heels. He was actually in the party that, that arrived in Jerusalem for this, this famous uh, you know, entry into the, the Holy City in just before Christmas 1917. And he raised the question of the government of the city and... The, the British fended him off by saying, well, this is still a war zone and, and you know, we have to, we, we you know, we, there's a military administration really until the war ends because yeah. no one really quite knew what, you know, what, what was going to happen. And, and the British certainly didn't want to share the government of the, the place with the French. Yeah. And it's a classic example of of the difference between a sort of diplomatic principles and, and facts on the ground. Um, so let, let's go on. Um, you mentioned December 1917. Well, just a month earlier, um, a letter had been written, uh, a famous letter from Arthur Balfour to Lord Rothschild. And I'm just going to read the, the opening paragraph. I have much pleasure, dear Lord, dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's government the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations which has been submitted to and approved by the cabinet, the Balfour Declaration. So can you explain as best you can, what is the Balfour Declaration and what was its context? So the Balfour Declaration was was quite quite simply a, uh, a declaration of British government support for the, the idea of Zionism and, and the idea of a, a Jewish national home. It arose straight out of the Sykes-Picot Agreement because as soon as as soon as it was clear that Britain hadn't got what it wanted strategically out of Sykes-Picot, it hadn't got Israel-Palestine, and there was this gap in the cordon that, that Sykes and others envisaged, they started looking around for you know for an alternative idea. Sykes himself was hugely anti-Semitic, even by the standards of that era. People noted that he was an anti-Semite mm. and he had quite exaggerated ideas about Jewish influence. Uh, and so he began to wonder whether whether the Jews might, you know, by by supporting the Zionists, it might sort of be able to bring, you know, the Jewish diaspora around the world in on you know behind the british but there were other ideas as well behind it that so i mean one of them was the fact that britain was was finding it quite hard to raise money on wall street um to yeah. fund the war obviously financing the war was critically important and uh, and there's an element of truth in this we've got, we've got to be very very careful but essentially that you know there because britain was allied to russia um through the french yeah and because Russia was so anti-Semitic. Uh, and this is pre-revolutionary Russia, of this course. This is pre-revolutionary Russia. So, you know, there were there were, you know, there were uh, Jewish bankers in the United States who were not, you know, anxious to lend them money. And were, in fact, yeah. were, you know, anxious to try to, to stop that from happening. So that, you know, that was an issue lurking behind the scenes. Uh, then there was the question of the, the United States itself, because, because, of course, in 1917, they joined um, joined the Allied uh, war effort. They, they declared war. And very soon after they did so, they were um, briefed on the existence of the Sykes-Picot Agreement. And when Colonel House, who was uh, President Wilson's 
foreign policy advisor found out about it, he said, it is all bad. And I told them so. So mm. the American response reaction to Sykes-Picot was was very negative when when they heard about it so yeah. so Britain knew that it needed to, you know to, to outwit the French to sort of to deal with American concerns they needed to come up with a, a better uh, basis for British rule of of what is now Israel Palestine and so the Balfour direct declaration was the device they used to achieve that and it the the phrase is used um the, the his majesty's government with favor the establishment in palestine of a national home for the jewish people now what is a national home does, does that mean a country does it mean a colony governed by britain do, 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 do we do we have an understanding of what they meant at that time i i don't think we do one of the interesting things about this is that the people, including Balfour, who actually supported the declaration, a lot of them had been, they came from the sort of fringes of Britain and were a particular kind of Protestant uh, often. And of course, sort of in lurking in Protestant theology going back into the 19th century was this idea that, you know, Christ, the Christians should help um, the Jews return to Israel, to the promised yeah. land. Uh, so that was a kind of that was powerful. It's very hard. I find it very hard now to sort of understand just how important that was compared to the strategic aspects of, of this, because there's no question that when people emphasized the, the sort of more spiritual side of things, they were told, you know, rewrite the memo so that you get the, the strategic stuff in first. You, you, you know, you see that very, yeah. very clearly. So so that was that. So. I don't think they really, I don't think they knew. I think like, as with the, the, the promise that they made to the Sheriff of Mecca, they were sort of feeling their way forward, one, you know, wondering what it, what was the minimum they could offer that would have the maximum possible response? How, how would it be interpreted? And so they came up with Jewish National Home. And of course, the second half of the declaration said that it, you know, it had to be without prejudice to the, the rights of the, the, the non-Jewish inhabitants, as the, yeah. the declaration put it. Um, yeah. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And presumably at that time, the number of Jews in Palestine was still very small. It was tiny, uh, or you know, ten, tens of thousands at, at the very most. Uh, yeah. So a, a very small number of people. Yeah. So let's jump forward a little. Uh, the obviously World War One came to an end. Uh, both the Ottomans and the Germans were defeated. The Ottoman Empire collapsed, and whilst it wasn't quite the same status as other colonies such as India or, or territories in Africa, uh, effectively. Um, the line drawn on the Sykes-Picot map morphed into uh, British colonies in Iraq, Jordan and Palestine and French colonies in Lebanon and Syria. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, that was so that that was all sort of stitched up in about 1920. The the, uh, the post-war discussions were increasingly rancorous. And uh, I mean, very soon after the war, the British managed to get the French to agree uh, that Palestine would come under British control, as would northern Iraq, because by then they'd worked out that there was oil in northern Iraq that they wanted, right. because they were so unsure of the American attitude, the sort of American anti-imperialism had really spooked the British. And the war was won on American oil. It was a, it was American oil from the Western Hemisphere, which had fueled the uh, the Allied war effort in Western Europe in the First World War. And so the British were looking for, you know, sources of supply of their own where the Americans wouldn't be able to, um, you know, wouldn't be able to, 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 to 
to influence them so much. So once the British had decided they wanted Iraq, then they realised that the quid pro quo for that had to be that French would control Lebanon and Syria. And of course, that cut across the promise that they had made to Sharif Hussein during the war to get him to revolt, because Lebanon and Syria were part of that that Arab Part of the promise, yeah. Uh, so it was all very awkward. Um, but Balfour famously said, uh, you know, during the Paris peace negotiations that, it, you know, if they had to um, offend one side or another, it was better that they offended the, the Arabs rather than the French. And the yeah. reason for that was because by the end of, uh, you know, the, the Paris peace conference and, and when Vers- the Versailles Treaty was eventually signed, it, it was pretty clear to people that there was going to be, this wasn't going to solve anything, there would be another war at some point. And, and Britain's assumption at that point, uh, which was rather confounded come the Second World War, of course, was that, that they needed to have the French on side. So it was the French, um, fre- you know, French interests prevailed. Yeah. Um, and so the, the the territories that then sort of took shape uh, un, under British rule, Iraq, I think it was called Transjordan and and Palestine, the the borders that existed between those different so-called mandates, did they correspond to previous Ottoman borders or how how was that map sort of divvied up? Uh, the, the, the Ottoman Empire in the east was divided up into much smaller provinces. And in fact, yeah. at one point, the British did think about basing post-war rule on, on the, the, the Ottoman sort of provincial boundaries, but then changed their minds when the when the French got involved. So it didn't exactly correspond. I, I, I couldn't honestly say exactly how the where the, the boundaries were, but uh, essentially these these were new entities. And if you look at the sort of you know the angular nature of places like um, Jordan and, and and the eastern the, the western borders of Iraq, sorry, you know, yeah. um, show you this is this was all done straight know, lines it's a model drawn thing. on a map it's straight lines on a map and it doesn't yeah. really even you know it doesn't reflect the the syrian desert is not something that is uh, you know it's a rather featureless um undulating place without you know much yeah. many features on it uh but you know the lines run straight across it yeah yeah um so let's let's re- return to to what is called palestine at that time in in the sort of 1920s and 30s, uh, had did the Balfour Declaration have a significant impact on uh, Jewish um, emigration or Jewish return, if you like, to to the what was the historic land of Israel? So there there was uh, Jewish immigration after you know at the end of the First World War. It did it did have some effect. Uh, but the problem was that Palestine was a backwater. I mean, it was yeah. it was uh, it was you know very uh, you know it barely I say barely farmed. It was sparse, relatively sparsely populated at that time. Mm. There were serious diseases like malaria present, uh, and so the work in Palestine at the beginning was was backbreaking. Frankly, yeah. you, you know, there was a lot of stone breaking to be done before you could, you know, you could um, make a living farming. But of course, the kinds of people who were coming, the kinds of Jewish people who who wanted to escape Europe and find something better, tended to live in towns and cities where they were, you know, they were persecuted. They weren't yeah. farmers at all. They were they were urbanites. Yeah. And so they arrived in Palestine and, you know, were handed a handed a rake or something like that and and it wasn't you know it wasn't what they they weren't it wasn't their skill and it certainly wasn't what they particularly wanted to do so in fact during the 20s at times there was actually net emigrate net, net jewish emigration from palestine so people came and then they, they they saw how you know how desperate it was and they they left again right it's only in the 1930s when obviously the you know the political situation in Europe changes that that, that significant numbers of, of of Jews started to come. Um and throughout that time, what was the status of the land that these people occupied? Because clearly, you know, there there is a population there already, as as Balfour recognized, as you know, as as is just evident from any any um you know bit, bit of history so were, were people buying land were they acquiring it in some other way they were being assigned land what was happening 
they were buying land. Just just to come back to something you said, yeah. that's very interesting, is that actually the big question is, did Balfour really realise who was there and and, right. uh, and so on? Because I think um, uh, Balfour visited, I think, finally in, in the mid twenties, and mm. apocryphally, there's this this story that he he was sort of confronted by lots of lots of people. I guess he came, mm. he went to Jerusalem. Um, certainly there were plenty of protests where, wherever he went, but he was apparently flabbergasted by by the people he saw because I, I suppose in a way, I've got a, a Bible here that I've had for years and it's sort of, it, you know, it's got pictures of things like the sort of the burning bush and mm. all, all the illustrations in a Bible, if you go back, you know, to a 19th century Bible or something like that, tend to sort of show desert and em emptiness. And if you think yeah. of the pictures that David Roberts, you know, the famous Victorian, um, you know, watercolorist, yeah, you know, they're all sorts of they're kind of rather empty landscapes with yeah. people looking contemplatively into the distance. Mm. And I think, uh, you know, this sort of rubs off that essentially the the, the people who divided up the middle east in in the first world war didn't really appreciate that there was a you know there was an uh, urban arab palestinian population living there and that, yeah. you know there uh, and and this and this prejudice prevails and it still you know, goes on today that there's this assumption that arabs are people who will move you know the the, the whole the concept of being arab is mobility yeah and you see this going right back i mean right back to the first time that the arabs acquire that label it's really sort of during roman times but it's not quite clear what the romans mean by it but there's definitely a kind of concept of these are people who who can up sticks and go and that mm. continues all the way through so there's always this assumption that you know that 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 the, 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 there'll be space because the arabs can move if necessary um and that, that underlies a lot of, of of what's happened in the in the 20th century and yeah, so, so that was my my thought about Balfour and where we're but just and just on that point to explore that a little is that partly because you know the the word Arab is is used to obviously to describe people who who use the Arabic language as their first language and for example um, you know in 20th century Saudi Arabia before the oil boom it was a largely sort of nomadic pastoralist society whereas actually the Levant the region of of what is now Syria Lebanon and and, and Palestine had had urbanization much earlier on. So it's partly just the, the fact that we're using this one word to describe some very different types of societies. I, I think that's absolutely right. But yeah, and, and going right back, Arab was used in this slightly uh, uh, kind of what's the word diffuse way or, you know, yeah. it, was used for, it was used to just the same word was used to describe groups of people in rather different settings yeah but, but always people who were sort of on the margins of of the urbanized world but of course by the 20th century that wasn't the case you know the, the uh this was you know the, the middle east in general was the earliest urbanized society in, of course in in sort of well i mean west west of uh west of iran anyway discounting yeah the Indian civilizations, but, you know, so a high degree of urbanization, but somehow this was rather ignored along the way. Yeah. So we were talking about the, the land situation before World War Two, when when Jews went to uh, what is the historic land of Israel? What what how are they getting land? What the, how are they acquiring this? So they were buying it and they were buying it from from big Arab landowners, some of whom were in quite a lot of financial distress at that time. Yeah. So they were there were there were significant and there always had been these these sort of notables. They were they're sort of known as who who tended to live in in the towns in Syria, but owned estates that were often quite spread about. They weren't it wasn't necessarily contiguous bits of land, parcels of land, but they had yeah. parcels here and here and there. Now, the creation of the frontier, uh, uh, you know, between British and French controlled territory made their the job of supervising their their land holdings a little bit more tricky at times, particularly when there were periods of, 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 of sort of disturbance and the um, border crossings became tricky. So uh, landowners started to sell up and they often, you know, they found willing purchasers in the in the Jewish community who wanted to buy the land and wanted to to, to try and make the most of it. Yeah. Uh, the British, I think, tried to restrict this. So in 1929, there were riots uh, which started uh, over an access dispute um, to the, the the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall of the Temple, yeah. the last remaining bit of of 
Herod's temple. Yes. Uh, and at that time, nowadays that's a big plaza, but of course back then there was a, a very, uh, essentially the plaza was an Algerian, there was an Algerian quarter there and a mm. lot of very, very dense housing. And the wall itself was essentially one side of a narrow alleyway. And there was a, an argument over access because people wanted to put up screens to segregate um, male and female worshippers, all that sort of thing. And, and it was basically a right of way issue. Anyway, yeah. it, it uh, like a lot of these things do, it started something sort of trivial and, and ended up enormous with people being murdered. And as a result of that, the British did start to restrict. They realised that immigration was an issue. And although their plan to limit immigration was uh, was pushed back by um, by Zionist lobbying, essentially, and, and the, yeah. the Labour, Ramsay McDonald's Labour government didn't want to, to go there. They did, I think, restrict uh, land sales to try to take some of the pressure off, uh, off or, and sort of remove some of the causes of, of, of discontent. You, you've mentioned how, um, you know, life was pretty tough in that pre-war period. And in fact, that you know, there was net emigration out of out of uh, what was then Palestine. Um, clearly, the events of World War Two changes everything and, and, and the, the horrific uh, sort of crime of the Holocaust in, in Europe. But what was actually happening in sort of military terms in in those territories during World War Two? Well, I suppose just before that, the, 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 there was a huge Arab revolt in the 1930s, and that drew in a large number of British troops. And yeah, to so the British uh, dealt with the, the rebels uh, with enormous brutality, but but managed through censorship to conceal a lot of what went on. And we're only really finding out about some of the extent of that, you know, relatively recently. Uh, but so. Come 1940 or so, uh, there was a situation where the the French authorities in Beirut and Damascus the, the, uh, had they backed Vichy, um, yes, partly because of the degree of ill will that there had been between the wars between the British and the French authorities, because both sides had faced uprisings. The the rebels in each case had crossed the border and used sort of space on the other side of the frontier to to organise themselves. And when that happened in Syria, the British refused to help the French. And when it happened in Palestine, the French refused to help the British. So there was plenty of bad blood on on both sides. But particularly, I think the French felt that the British had been very uncooperative. Yeah. Uh, so they backed Vichy. And Palestine was essentially a, a it was a kind of backwater. It was the sort of place you went, you know, for, for R&R if you were on, you know, fighting in the Western Desert yeah. um, in, in the North Africa campaign. Uh, and it was relatively quiet because at that point, although um, the Jews were increasingly um, fed up with British rule, obviously they realised that, that Hitler posed the greater danger. So they just had to sort of sit sit quiet for the yeah. time being. Uh, but in 1941, the Vichy government allowed Ger the German Luftwaffe to use uh, air bases in Syria to support an Arab uprising in Iraq. And that was the point at which the British decided they could not sort of leave things as they were any longer. Yeah. Uh, and so in sort of June 1941, a combined British, Australian and Free French force invaded uh, Lebanon and Syria. There was a sort of month long, rather vicious war. And the result of it was that the Vichy forces capitulated and de Gaulle, took over so he became he took over Lebanon the running of Lebanon and Syria but because he was so so short-staffed he had to re-employ a lot of the people who had uh, worked for the Vichy government who who swapped swapped sides and joined him um, but who bore you know considerable ill will towards the British yeah and if I'm not mistaken there are still uh, Palestinians alive today who were who fought under British command in that campaign Right, I, I, it wouldn't. It, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. I always, I always think of this is sort of longer ago than it was. Uh, but mm. it's, uh, you know, it is within li living memory uh, because it's what 75, 80, 80 years ago. Yeah. So um, there are very old, old men and women who who remember this. You know, yeah. this time. Yeah. So another thing that was happening at that time was that you had the former Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, a, a sort of significant figure in in a kind of. Um, Islamic hierarchy 
uh, Hajj Amin al Husseini, who had he'd fallen foul of of the Brits during the revolt that you mentioned, and he by this time had had sort of sided with the with the Axis powers, hadn't he? And and I think he was operating out of Berlin as a kind of propagandist. Um, yeah, he he'd washed up in Berlin exactly. He yeah. initially he yeah he was um, one of the sort of the t- the the Husseinis were the you know with the Nashashibis they were sort of two of the three big Jerusalem families and the, he'd been the Grand Mufti um, since the 20s and yeah. and that gave him command of various char- charitable sort of funds and, and enabled him to raise money and and, and uh, boost his own reputation. He ended up essentially running the Arab revolt and, and pushing people around. He was then exiled by the British and he ended up outside Beirut for a while but then as you say he washed up in Berlin and uh, where of course the, the you know the Nazis sort of embraced him and wondered whether they could reprise the whole idea of the holy war that they had thought about in the in the First World War. So so um, yeah, he was he was out there doing that, and then eventually he ended up in I think in Paris in 1946, and then mysteriously escaped house arrest. Essentially, what happened was the French realised they didn't they just didn't want him, and so. Yeah. Uh, he was allowed to escape, I think, on a on a sort of false Egyptian passport or something like that. Yeah, but uh, the the rather sort of painful overlap of kind of extreme fascistic anti-Semitism and then an, an Arab anti-Semitism that is is obviously very hostile to Jewish immigration in into Palestine. Does that sort of start there? Uh, it possibly goes back ever so slightly further because, of course, there were there were sort of fascistic groups or groups that looked very much like, you know, the brown shirts and stuff operating, say, in Syria from the, the 30s onwards. There was there's some the, 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 the sort of Syrian uh, Arab nationalists generally uh, were sort of oddly attracted to what was going on in both Italy and Germany. And so. Yeah. Some of it was rather comical. I think people never, you know, people didn't really take it that seriously in the 30s. There's a there's a sort of famous picture of a a group of Syrians, sort of, of these. I forgot what they were called, the Iron Shirts. I think they say so right. very sort of, you know, real sort of similar stuff. Yeah, but they're all standing on sort of school, like sort of chairs and and, and giving sort of Nazi style salutes. But it all looks slightly sort of pathetic slightly comical rather than than alarming. it's a little bit um roderick spode's brown shorts or whatever they're called you know the um... exactly and and, yeah. and and people said the same about king faisal so lawrence of arabia's wartime you know comrade ended up as king of iraq because the british had put him there and yeah uh, people said that he was rather lucky to have died in 1933 because he was also showing some interest in all this um, yeah. sort of ideology, and and you know he his reputation might have suffered if he he'd lived longer than he did. Yeah, and then you had the Falange militia in Lebanon, didn't you? Which, which modelled itself originally on, I think, the Spanish fascists. Exactly, and then and the Syrian is it Syrian Socialist Party, who have a kind of like a sort of three pronged swastika, as uh, you know, it's like yeah. a red, white, and black flag with a with a with a sort of swastika type uh, device on it. Yeah, there's I mean, there's lots of things which are you know um, uh, not too not too pleasant, and and yeah. of course, and that has you know, and it, it did. I mean, they you know, there were there were unfortunately Arabs who said who thought that you know my enemy's enemy is my friend and therefore um thought hitler was a good thing yeah indeed um so obviously we we, we have the the horrific events of the holocaust uh and that completely changes uh the equation of of what's happening in in these lands that we're talking about i mean is that right is it is is the i mean clearly it, in the moral the moral case for there being a state of israel is completely built around uh, the the responsibility of Europe for the Holocaust uh, is 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 that how you see it from as a sort of historian trying to un- understand the, the development of these events? Yes, no, it is, and I think it is increasingly actually. I think uh, in the sense that the Balfour Declaration, which Israel did, you know, mark back in 2017 on the centenary yeah is the most is a really rocky foundation for a state given that you know there's an anti-semitic ideas lurking in it and, and, yeah. and it's a sort of you know it's the result of a sort of a, you know a bit of a sort of british 
clever thinking that went wrong, really. So so that's not very solid. But the, the Holocaust changed everything because uh, clearly, it, you know, it, it produced sympathy across Europe, but it also produced guilt. I think that that's almost as important. And when you particularly look at, say, the attitude of the French in supporting uh, the, the young Israeli state, I think that the motives uh, for the French for doing so, they're quite complicated. But one of them, of course, is the role that the French played in the Holocaust and the fact that, you know, they had rounded up um, French Jews and sent them off to their deaths during uh, during the war. Yeah. But also, of course, then uh, Jews who'd escaped that, French Jews who'd escaped that played a, a pretty uh, a significant role in, in the resistance. And so... Yeah. Uh, France was a, you know, it was an interesting country in which you, uh, after the war, there were these Jewish networks quite, you know, that had been used for um, for resistance activity during the war were then in a position where they could run uh, guns to Palestine and then Israel as it became, uh, but also organise uh, emigration, organise, you know, uh, people smuggling of people who had survived the, the death camps or, or just avoided them. Um, out of Central Eastern Europe, where they were living in, in fairly horrendous conditions in these displaced people camps, displaced persons camps, you know, the, the, they were then, a, the, these people were all coming west, arriving in France, where they, uh, were, they were helped to, to leave for Palestine. Thank you for listening to the first of these special episodes on the history of the Israel-Palestine conflict. In the next episode, We'll learn more about Jewish militancy in the mid-20th century, the events of 1948, including the Nakba, and of course the establishment of the State of Israel. If you found this episode interesting and useful, please give us a positive review and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any more episodes. Behind the Lines is produced by me, Arthur Snell, and the theme tune is by Matty Bentley. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.